0: If you didn't think this was going to change your body's shape or size, would you engage in this activity? Like, would you find joy in it?
1: Hello, welcome to The Seasoned RD, a podcast connecting newer professionals in the field of eating disorders. To those of us who have been around for a while,
2: I'm your host, Beth Harrell, a certified eating disorders registered dietitian and supervisor.
1: And I'm Abby Brown, a registered dietitian who is newer to the field. I think of myself as a well-seasoned cast iron skillet. With wisdom and experience, yet always ready for something new. And I think of myself as an Instapot with innovation and a fresh perspective. This podcast brings both to the table to share ingredients, recipes, and techniques of past and present so we can all be our best for the future. The kettle is heating up. The skillet is on simmer.
2: So join us around the table for true professional nourishment. Abby, ready to stir the pot? Let's do it. All right, welcome back to The Seasoned RD. If you're a regular listener, thank you so much. And welcome to The Seasoned RD. If this is your first episode, you are going to be hooked, I hope, after listening to Amy Gardner who is in the Boston area. She's a registered dietitian, certified as an eating disorder specialist and registered yoga therapist. And she helps us with that one question that we can help our clients when they say, is my exercise compulsive? Is it disordered? And Amy is a trainer. She's a teacher and she's just an amazing supervisor. She is sharing with us who she collaborates with occupational therapy OT and how that helps us avoid food trauma and talking to your supervisors about your own personal history, and that can help decrease the shame or feelings of being an imposter. But one of the best nuggets for you is her 12-week clinical training. So all of the links are in the show notes, and she has a free book called Free. Where do you get free anymore besides podcasts? But imovebook.com, and it is amazing. You're going to love it, and thank you for joining us. Welcome, Amy
1: Gardner. We are so happy to have you here today.
2: Thank
0: you for having me. I'm really excited to be here.
1: Yeah, we cannot wait to learn from you. It sounds like you've got a lot of really awesome things going on that we can't wait to learn about and to share with others. But just to kind of start things off easy, mountains or beach? Beach. Beach. Do you have a specific place in
0: mind? Yes, I grew up on the coast of Maine, just north of Portland. So I love there's two beaches in Maine that I love. One is Popham, which is just north of Freeport. It's amazing. And the other would be Scarborough Beach, which is in a town I lived in until I was in seventh grade. And just it's I spent many, many, many days through the summer on the on that beach. Mm. Do you
2: um, say, did you say Maine? Yes. But then you said Portland. So Portland. there must not Port- Portland, <laughs> <laughs> See, my mind goes to Awesome. Yeah. I kept go- shifting back and forth across yeah, yeah. the
1: country when yeah. I'm picturing you <laughs> at your destination. Yeah. Okay. And then breakfast or dinner?
0: Ooh, dinner.
1: Mm-hmm. Why a so lot that? of people have, yeah. A lot of people have been saying dinner lately. Why, what's your reason? I I would have said breakfast up until
0: having kids. And now that I have kids, breakfast just feels so much more rushed. And I think dinner is a time when I really can sit and relax and enjoy the meal. And it's time when we come together as a family. So it just, it, it, it's interesting though, earlier in, in my career and through my 20s, I remember just loving breakfast. I would have a leisurely breakfast and then i watched watch the Today Show and my hey. lifestyle is just a lot different now that I have kids. mornings are really busy. <laughs>
2: For sure. That makes a lot of sense. Okay. Last question. Audiobook or paper book?
0: Ooh, audiobook.
2: Yeah. That was a that's another thing that's
0: shifted as my life has changed, partly because I I listen to them in the car. You know, if yep. I've got I'm on a commute or if I'm waiting for one of my kids to get out of a an activity, it's a great way to pass the time.
2: Same. Even doing, you know, errands or whatever. I I have that something like that playing in my ear.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
2: All right. Well, we're going to bring you back. You're a registered dietitian.
1: Yes.
2: Yes. Yes. We want to bring you back to your RD exam day. What okay. do you remember about that? Was it? <laughs> was uh, it? Oh, audio? Wow. Was it number two pencil or keyboard? It was keyboard.
0: It okay. Was
1: keyboard.
0: I remember um, being very nervous, and I, in all honesty, I think I passed by the skin of my teeth. <laughs> And I was just so grateful. I wouldn't have to go through and learn about like a size two scoop or any of those food service questions that we get asked. (laughs) I was. It was just you know some of that information. I was like, I do not want to hold on to this information. So I was very grateful to to be done with that.
2: (laughs) Yeah, and you know, there's someone that we were talking to that said. Um, it doesn't matter if you got a, a C or an A. Like when you're working with people, you don't know what they if they graduated summa cum laude from college or whatever. If you passed, you passed. Exactly. So, and it we yeah, this is the reason we ask this question is that there's people who are newer in the field or people who are interns that we also include on this episode on this podcast because everyone's perspective really makes the pot richer, you know, of all of our seasonings that we kind of throw into the pot. So the seasoned RD is ED, it's eating disorder, and then RD for registered dietitian, but it's for all professionals. And there are people right now studying for their exams, or there are people getting ready for it, or they're getting ready. So Mm -hmm. to hear you, who has been so accomplished in this field, talk about how anxious you were, I think Mm -hmm. kind of helps just make us human, right? Exactly, exactly. So how did you get into dietetics and yoga therapy and then eating disorders?
0: Wow, so it's so interesting. I remember, I, so I went to UNH for undergrad, and I'll never forget, I went in thinking I wanted to do environmental science and something around city planning, and I really struggled with resource economics. I remember that course just killed me, and I remember I was talking to a friend who was just talking about being a nutrition major, and I was like, wow, wow. I'm interested in nutrition and food, and I'm an athlete. And I didn't know that that was an option. So I took Nutrition 101, which at UNH was called Foods and Dudes. It was considered an easy science class to get that requisite. And I loved it. I just loved learning about how nutrients work in our body and just the different information about food. And so that was really the foray into getting into nutrition for me. And uh, from there, I realized, wow, it wasn't really an easy science at all. That foods and dudes was, you know, not a really good indication of what was to come, you know, with all the tough science courses we have to take. So, but I am so grateful. I feel like I just, I love, I love the science aspect. I love the, the 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 people and cultural aspect of it and the emotional piece, especially now working with eating disorders. And the yoga therapy pieces I have found in my own life, it's just been so helpful to get connected and become more embodied. And in terms of the relationship with food, I feel like it's really critical. It helps create more interceptive awareness. So it doesn't only help with our Know, our ability to have stronger connections with people, but also like a really rich connection with our, our our physical cues that then feeds nicely into our relationship with food.
2: And you just kind of answered it, but for anyone who doesn't know what interoceptive awareness means, what does that mean?
0: So that is really our awareness of what's going on internally, all those like like where is our heart rate? Where is our hunger? Are we tired? Our ability to write to, to really read those natural cues that are are, are always there, that, that below the surface, maybe the less obvious ones, right? It's not so much about just, I mean, we, it would be something we we'd use to register if we're cold, but it's like, you know, how do we know if we're we're needing food? How do we know when
1: we're when we're actually we need to go to the bathroom or we're thirsty? Exactly. How do you use that in your practice or with patients or what does that look like?
0: Good question. So for me, one of the biggest ways I use it is to really reference where I'm I'm at, you know, in a session with a client or in a group setting. So I can really resource my body as, as a tool that can create both safety in the session for clients, but also register. Well, what might be going on for them? Because more often than not, if I'm feeling something like in the pit of my stomach, and I ask a client, like, "Gee, like, you know, I'm noticing this this feeling in the pit of my stomach. What's going on for you?" Oftentimes, they're no, they're feeling the same thing. So it's a way for us to really use the the body in the session. I do, sometimes will use if a client comes in in a particularly dysregulated state, you know, either if they're disconnected and they're looking at the ground and they're really, their nervous system is really, really hypo aroused or vice versa. If it's hyper aroused, I might use something to ground, you know, a, a brief breathing exercise, meditation, or, you know, just have them kind of focus on their feet, grounding them on the floor and use some of the language that I learned through my training, my, my. Training. Tell no. us about
2: your trainings. Yeah. Yeah. So I, um,
0: you know, I, I, I have the nutrition training. I got my master's at NYU. And in the course of like my work working with eating disorders, I found it really valuable to do training in mindfulness. So I went through the mindfulness-based stress reduction program at UMass. I also did a training in something called SMART, which is sensory motor arousal response treatment for kids that have trauma history. So it really integrates sensory work, like this playfulness, bringing in, you know, big physio balls and and, and, and meeting with the kids in this big playroom and, and, and using their bodies to help release that traumatic imprint. It's very fascinating. So, and then honestly, in my own experience, having a child that needed some work on sensory integration early on, I got a lot of exposure and did my own research on sensory integration, which I think is fascinating and something that us as dietitians really could benefit from, because food is such a sensory experience. So having that background and being able to add that to my repertoire was really, really great. And then uh, the yoga teacher training—I did a combination of different trainings with different teachers that I really respected. And so a good portion of it was in just learning yoga philosophy, and I did learn about how to teach vinyasa and Yin yoga. I, I, There were some qigong elements to it and also meridian yoga, which is really fascinating. So I learned a lot about uh, acupressure points and, and it's, that's been really valuable in my work as a dietitian too, because I can help people when they're describing just issues with the digestion or pain Mm. in their stomach or, and I can say like, let's find an acupressure point and let's work on that a little bit. It's been really cool to be able to integrate that. And then the other specialized training I got with within the yoga field was in uh, yoga for autism, which was fascinating because it's all reliant on nonverbal communication. So using these these amazing cards to show the poses and then using my own body with, ver- with, with a lot of economy of language, not using a lot of words. Fascinating just to really, it's called voice colors yoga. And I highly recommend checking it out. This woman, Hannah Gould and Eve, this woman who had a son that worked with Hannah individually, for yoga therapy, they developed this model, and it's it's fascinating. I, I got such an, an an inside scoop into working with this population.
2: Yeah, I am in awe right now thinking about this because there's so many things that I'm pulling together. Is the sensory, and the, I, I always think about autism, and when we talk about interoception and being able to read mm-hmm. people, and that can be really difficult. Also, the yoga, all the training that you have have just now talked about and I don't even I know we haven't talked about everything because you're CEDRD also but but how you then tie that in and with with by the way, at the end in the show notes, we always put seasonings. So we're going to have Amy's seasonings and, and we're going to put in the sensory training, the voice colors, the smart, all the things that you just talked about to kind of help people who may be newer in the field or even people who have been around for a long time start to think about where they want to go next in their training. You You talked about how you incorporate that in every day because we have another webinar called, or another episode called You Can't Webinar All Day. You have to actually apply these things um, for it to really make a difference. So how do you, what, tell us about your practice and about your book.
0: Absolutely. So I own a group practice here in Massachusetts. We have three locations, throughout the greater Boston and Metro West area. And it's been around for about 11 years now, which is great. We've really grown a lot. We now have 15 clinicians. So a combination of dietitians, psychotherapists, and we now have an occupational therapist too, because we do a lot of work with fit and sensory-based eating issues. So it's been nice to grow into more of a multidisciplinary team. We are really rooted in social justice and health at every size. And I, have, I really strive to create an environment for, Diversity and also for a really rich learning uh, experience for our clinicians. So, we do a lot of training. We do a lot. There's a lot of mentoring. And the idea is to really develop clinicians that are experts in this area of healing people's relationship with food, body, and movement. You know, now, I mean, a couple of us are yoga teachers. We have a personal trainer. So, we are you know, looking to really expand those offerings and, and be able to bring movement into the per, into our services
2: in a, in a more extensive way. Tons of training there, too. Social justice, health at every size, diversity, mm-hmm. including a variety of practitioners. So not only the psychotherapist, mm-hmm. but the occupational therapist. Now we mm-hmm. know that we ha- there are occupational therapists who are certified eating disorder specialists now. Physical mm-hmm. therapists and occupational therapists are eligible. to become certified. One question, because you do incorporate all of that, and you were talking earlier about sensory, about trauma, about those things, how do you keep the lanes of your scope of practice? Do you have any comments about that? Does your psychotherapist get concerned when you do therapeutic modalities? Mm, That's a
0: really good question, and I we do have a lot of conversation about that, and we do group supervision weekly. So there, those that comes up, and I think it's really I, I do think there's there's definitely areas of overlap I, in working with eating disorders. It's really hard to avoid that, and we want to work from a whole person perspective. I think what we will we want to make sure what we've talked about. I think because we just do such close supervision is making sure that that clients aren't bringing information to the dietitian that really needs to go to the psychotherapist. And so we help we help them identify in the training like these are things that are really to be you know like if someone's bringing up a really important piece of trauma history or a relationship issue or some kind of behavioral issue that like something related to substance, like we want to make sure the therapist knows that. And and I think acknowledging, thank you for sharing. This is really important information. And I'm so glad you trust me with it. And I'm wanting, I want to make sure that this information gets to, you know, Amari because she's your therapist. Mm-hmm. Are you okay with me communicating that? Or would you prefer to do that? So we have that kind of language around that it. language. And, and I do think part of the reason we, we, brought therapists on was because we were having a hard time finding, first of all, finding people to refer to second of all, finding therapists that were aligned with our philosophy and really rooted in me And, and we wanted to be able to have close contact with them to be able to be in this collaborative relationship so that we could have these conversations and make sure that there wasn't information coming to, to us that the therapist wasn't getting and vice versa.
2: Yeah. Beautiful. That just confirms what I do and what so many of us do is really guiding them back to the therapist, but it's still collaborative yes. because the therapist will be working on those issues and, and they may feel more comfortable coming to you as yes. the dietitian about it. And then we can guide them. And then it's just this big basket of like, we've, we're your team and we're all together. You're part of the team.
0: And I think you trust your gut when it starts to be like, Ooh, I don't know where to go with this. Right. I don't know what to say or what, how to handle it. Like, that's a good indication that, Okay, this is really important what you're sharing. and I think this is really something that we, that, that we need to make sure you discuss in therapy and, and you know you know to acknowledge that it's important and you want to help them get their needs met, yeah.
1: And then what about your OT? Beth and I have been talking about OTs very frequently. Mm lately. We want to have one on the podcast, but if you could explain what that looks like, and then Uh, specifically
0: with Arfin. She is someone I've been connected to for years and who works at the Kumar OTA Center here in Boston. And has been part of developing this, this, this mealtime focus, which is a, a, a sensory-based feeding program for, for kids, adults. And because of her specific interests in food and in feeding and, and background in, in sensory-based eating issues, it just felt like a natural fit. And she had a strong desire to work on a multidisciplinary team. And I, so I think it's the Finding the right fit. And so the way it works, she just consults with our clients that, you know, that would benefit from it. And then she does a full workup. So she gives, you know, if it's, if it's a child, she'll give the parents like a full workup describing what she's finding in terms of oral motor needs and sensory integration needs, and give them some some home activities they can do. And if they need something more significant, she might recommend they go to see her or someone else and an actual OT facility where they have like a sensory gym, et cetera. But the great thing is that the dietitian also gets this report and can see, oh, these are foods that would be helpful to start with and integrate into our work. Or yes, the fit like if it's fit for instance, it's based in maybe this, this food trauma or maybe it's based in, there's actually an oral motor d- delay here that we need to address. And that might alleviate some of the, the, the issues that are going on. So it's been a really wonderful, just a perspective to incorporate and it's in terms of learning as a group, it's been it's been amazing to have her on board too. She's offered some wonderful training.
2: Mm. Mm. I'm so glad you asked that, Abby, because mm. this is something again that rewind 30 years ago when I came into the field. We had one book, Reef and Reef,
1: for mm. dietitians.
2: <laughs> and the doctors were doing their own thing and they weren't communicating with the therapist because we didn't know. And the therapist then the physical therapist now and the occupational therapist can be so helpful. And one thing I want to add
0: is I think that it helps us avoid any potential trauma around food, right? Because if someone has a real oral defensiveness, because for whatever reason, we don't want to just come at it from a behavioral standpoint, like, oh, this is exposure and we're going to get you, we're going to get you to eat it, you know, because we need to, we want to have more information so that we're not creating more trauma around food, right?
2: Yeah. You're getting, you're gathering up the information that, that can help you then move forward, but you have to have that background of the structural and uh, and the other pieces to avoid that trauma. Otherwise we're
1: going to lose them and they're not going to, they're
2: not going to get better. It's awesome. How
1: would you know the difference there? So you said that you know, sometimes it's more than just behavioral. How would you be able to tell like, oh, we should send them to the OT? Uh,
0: good question. So we have, there is, and I I can probably send this resource to you. There is a screening tool uh, Lori, our OT uses that is something that lives on the website at their at the OT facility she works at. So it's kind of screening for 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 people to know if, oh, that it might be sensory-based. I can write down that I'll share that with you. It's also just the dietitians are, are, will ask those same questions, right, in session and, and get a little bit more information. And, and I think a little bit of like, okay, what's this person's profile look like in terms of foods they're accepting right now? So if it's all white foods, for whatever reason, or it's all bread, it, it's all a certain consistency, like that might be a red flag that, oh, there's something going on. Maybe they, 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 they're they having it. There's like, if there's an, for instance, if there's an oral motor delay, maybe they can't chew, things that are like a a tougher texture like meats or other kinds of protein foods so that might be something just to kind of explore and honestly a lot of times we just ask we'll say hey Lori like this is what's going on with this patient do you think it would be a good referral for you and then we'll we'll go that route a lot of a lot of internal collaboration like emailing and, and communication that way yeah
2: that would be awesome to see that screening so that we know better when to get them over to an OT. And then thinking about who you can pair with. That's a big piece of eating disorders care is finding your tribe, finding the people who are in your your wheelhouse of what the health at every size or intuitive eating or the, the same therapeutic modalities. And, and what am I trying to think of your yeah, theoretical right. orientation. Right, exactly.
0: The same theoretical orientation. Exactly. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, so that you can click and then help our, our clients. So tell us a little bit about your book. Absolutely. So it's interesting. So back
0: in 2005, I was working, in addition to working at McLean Hospital, I was working at some health clubs as a dietitian and was seeing a lot of compulsive exercise. And, and, and in my work as a dietitian in these in these health clubs, I was Seeing a lot of eating disorder behavior, and so me and one and a physical therapist that happened to work there decided to do. Uh, and what we were finding is that the, that the club that we were the clubs that we were working at the the managers were feeling nervous, right, about having people that were potentially at significant risk exercising excessively in their clubs. So we put together a presentation on compulsive exercise for this organization called New England Health recreational sports association. And then we did, we did, so we did a, basically a presentation to train them on how to identify, right. When they're, when you're, when you're seeing at that time and in, in, uh, often in literature, you'll see exercise addiction. I, I intentionally did not use that language in my book, but it was what was used in the literature and what was how we described it in that particular um, training. And they asked us to then present it nationally because, or internationally, I'm sorry, because they felt like it was so important and valuable for for managers of health clubs and sports centers to, to have this knowledge. And uh, what they were realizing is a lot of their trainers were struggling too. Right. And so how do you help a trainer or someone on your staff who's struggling with an eating disorder, compulsive exercise? And the literature also states that compulsive exercise is usually the first presenting behavior and the last present, the last to go. So it's, so what basically in that time frame, I kept thinking through these years, I'm like, someone's going to put together a resource for compulsive exercise. Someone's going to put something together. And then, and I, you know, if you've read my book, you'll see, I share my own personal recovery experience. I was an athlete. I struggled with compulsive exercise as a big part of my own disorder. And honestly, like doing the embodiment work and the yoga, the yoga piece was huge in my own recovery. And so I I feel like through the years I've supervised people, supervised a lot of clinicians and be saying, have them do something with mindfulness here. There's a yoga class here. And we're, 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 we're recommending these things, but there was this gap where the clients weren't doing it. And, and I was like, how do I show them? Like, how do I show them or give them opportunity to experience this? And how do I train the clinicians so they can do kind of what I'm doing and I had, so I started to, I had this aha moment in literally in Shavasana uh, when I, during a yoga class. I was like, in one of my teacher trainings, I'm like, this is what I'm supposed to do. I'm supposed to put together a resource and some training for clinicians on how to not just set behavioral goals around exercise or, or uh, it, but like, how do you then, how do you transition the relationship from into a different quality, right? So we're not just looking at you're either exercising or you're not, but like, let's look at the nature of this relationship. Let's look at how to shift it from something really compulsive and a way to escape the body to something that's really helpful and something you can resource as part of your recovery. Cause that's what I actually feel like movement is, huge in being able to attune to physiological cues to as a way of caring for the body nourishing the body and but but because so many people have a problematic relationship with it it's taken out of that equation right in their recovery process so this is helps bring it back in a more
2: helpful way yeah yeah you were enlightened in the middle of that and <laughs> and yoga yeah. therapy is the evidence based Activity for folks with eating disorders, mm-hmm. and you—you you mentioned supervision. Like, if people want to connect with you, do you provide consultation for individual? Yeah.
0: So right now, I mean, I do supervision within our group practice, which which keeps me pretty busy. I am I'm, I'm open to potentially doing supervision outside of that, mm-hmm. and I do offer a clinical training. So I have a twelve week oh. intensive training. I just did the first pilot that finished up in December. It was amazing. And we'll be, I'll be starting another one in February. So absolutely, people can reach out to me about that. It's a 12-week training. It, it teaches you how to use this, this, this method, basically. And you can actually then go and lead your own group. There's a full curriculum included. So I am happy to talk to anyone who might be interested in that. And it, it, down the road, it, it what I anticipate will happen is there will be supervision groups for alumni, people that are certified in the pr- protocol will then be able to connect that way and continue developing their skills. Yeah.
2: And that's even better to do it in a group session because setting because then you learn from other people, too. But you're mm-hmm. getting those modalities brought to you and then you can practice them. I am so glad I didn't know about the 12-week intensive
0: yeah. So it's, it's in pilot phase now. So this will be the second pilot and the, the full launch will be in the fall. So that's a relative. So there's not a lot of information out there on the on, I, the websites in the works. So it's a great, you know, if people are interested, happy to talk about that. I, I can jump on a call and, and, and tell you more about it. What certain
1: qualifications might someone need before being able to apply?
0: definitely to be a dietitian, have some experience with eating disorders. Honestly, I think a lot of clinicians I speak with are are not, they're just not sure this is in their scope of practice. They're really worried. Oh, do I need to be a personal trainer? Do I need to be a yoga te- teacher? And I say no, because there you, it, it's a, well, it's a value to have that background because um, you can bring things, different things in. You don't need to, because I provide a lot of resources for for instance, like a yoga, you know, like my own yoga um classes that they can access and, and have clients watch that they know will be aligned and will have helpful language, not problematic language, and other other resources we've I've vetted to make sure that they are a, applicable to this model. So what it might be look like is that instead of doing a movement in the group, you have people do it independently and come in process as a group. But a lot of the activities, quite honestly, are not, not exercise as, as we would think of them. It's movement in terms of like breathing, getting in tune to our nervous systems. And a lot of it's just kind of languaging and helping people navigate, you know, the relationship with exercise and, and um, what their particular nervous system uh, is trying to communicate and uh, developing a lot of curiosity. So a lot, I, I think, um, There's not other than just having an interest and some experience working with eating disorders, really nothing, because this is the the purpose of the program is to create this sense of this competency in this area so that you feel really confident and be able to help these individuals.
1: Well, I, for one, am very interested in that. That sounds great. But a question I have going off of that. Do you find that there are different forms of yoga that help with one type of eating disorder more than another?
0: That's a great question. So I will say not all yoga is created equal. And there's a whole section about that in my book where I talk about the more intense active forms of yoga that particularly for clients who are at risk for dehydration or maybe aren't nourishing themselves as well as they need to be are very are potentially hazardous, right? If they're going to be sweating a lot and like, or, you know, it demands a lot of physical energy. I know the research has been done on Hatha yoga. I think most of the research is done, which is really about um, connecting the breath to the movement in, in a slower pace. I think what I found to be challenging with some clients I work with, because we know oftentimes folks with trauma histories and, and, or just, you know, really anxious states can be in a perpetual state of uh, uh, fight or flight, right? They're always in sympathetic mode. It's really, really hard and feels unsafe to slow down. So sometimes maybe like a vinyasa that's not heated or something that's a little more active, but not so slow that they they freak out, right? Because it's it feels so foreign to what they're used to and what feels safe in their system. So I think it depends on the person. I personally love yin yoga. And I think many of our clients would benefit from it because it's, we have so much yang in our lives and so much efforting and doing, and the the yin really allows you to kind of connect to that receptive, more, um, I don't know, just being aspect of, of ourselves. And, but again, I think it takes some time for clients to be more open to that because it's, it's holding poses for a really long time mm. and they may be pretty intense and edgy, but because it can get into pretty deep stretches, but you're holding it and you're still and breathing mm. for like three to five minutes per pose, which for, as you can imagine, for a lot of clients struggling with eating is really tough.
2: Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned heated yoga and I, mm-hmm. I don't know how that triggers or helps or what do you know about heated yoga? Hot yoga is what I called it. Oh, but you, the I think
0: idea you- behind heated yoga, and there's, believe me, there's various kinds. And so I'm not going to speak globally. And, and I, I don't, I, I hesitate to speak negatively about any particular kind of yoga, although some I per- personally don't think are a really good idea for anyone. But with the heat, you do you do create an opportunity to access a deeper stretch. So I think there's some that, and I think a lot of people feel good when they've sweated, right? Like a lot of people, and, and so I don't think it's like, Um, outside of the realm of possibility for clients that are in a healthy place in their recovery to use heated yoga. But there are certain varieties that are, are known to be more likely to create injury or lead to, you know, to, to injury. And I think you also have to think about how frequently you're doing it. So I'll just give you an example here. Like my mother was trying yoga for the first time and she decided to take a Bikram yoga class and she got a free trial for a week. So she went every single day, and, and, and got really lightheaded and didn't feel good in, in, in nausea. And I'm like, well, I don't think you're supposed to go every day, even though you have a week trial, I think she was like trying to maximize this free week. So I, I think there's a, such an important message in that you need to rehydrate. You need to give your body a break. There needs to be proper hydration and fueling mm. outside of those sessions. If that's mm. something that you, you know, if, if it feels really good to your body and it's not driven right by that, the, the eating disorder, Mindset, then I think it's it's okay.
2: How do you know it's driven?
0: Ugh, that's a good question, right? In I mean, your book,
2: what's... I'm sure, but how do you? How do you know it's driven?
0: That's, I mean, I think there's some, there's a, there's a period of time in recovery when, when there's a lot of question about that, right? When you're, when you're not sure, and you just kind of keep, keep asking, and, and, and there's a little bit of, you know, kind of trial and error. There, like you might, you know, like how do I know if this is oriented from? the voice of recovery or the voice of the eating disorder. I think one of the things around exercise in particular that I like to ask clients is if you didn't think this was going to change your body, would you be doing this? Like if you didn't think this was going to change your body shape or size, would you engage in this activity? Like, would you find joy in it?
2: Wow. Yeah. I have actually never heard it phrased that way. I've definitely heard it, you know, if it's not attached to exercise or weight loss, mm-hmm or if it's joyful, but not how you just said it.
0: In that moment, asking that question, like if I didn't think this was going to change something about my body, would I be doing this right now?
1: I love it. And yoga seems like a good, kind of like a stair step into more intense exercise, if that's what they choose to do. But, you know, a lot of clients are like very gung ho to like, all right, I weight restored, let's get right back into exercise. But it's like something we also need to ease into.
0: Absolutely. And I think so the goal of iMove is to really help move from, okay, what's your relationship like with exercise now? It's like in, like, let's do the conceptual piece and do the exploration. Let's educate you a little bit about your nervous system and why you might be using exercise. And let's move in gradually to start to, to kind of, Get a little exposure to what's going on in the body in a safe way, right? Small little opportunities to, to, to peel back and kind of figure out what's going on inside. And the goal ultimately being let's get more embodied and move from there. So once you're more in the body and connected, making those decisions about movement feel different, right? How you move feels different. And I've even had, so I, I lead the, you know, these iMove groups, and I've had participants say, like, now that I've created such a wonderful relationship with exercise and experience around movement. I don't want to, I don't want to let that go. And even when they're, they're finding themselves lapsing with their food, they're like, I'm not letting go of this, 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 this great nourishing piece of my life that movement has become. So of I'm thinking of one person in particular, who started doing rock wall climbing and has found like she's connected with other people through that and it hasn't taken on a compulsive nature. It's really fun. And Mm -hmm. I just love that. And I don't want to start to feel like exercise is something I have to do, or it's about, you know, burning calories or this kind of obligatory punitive thing. Uh, So I really loved the way she articulated that she was preserving that, you know,
2: it It made me think of a client of mine who did aerial silks. Mm -hmm. I had not even heard of it. I've seen it on TV, but to, to know that that was even available in our area, but that that would be something that would Bring joy to someone and not go into that compulsion. So for those of us who don't have Amy Gardner in our back pocket to teach some of these classes, I'm thinking it's so hard for us to be able to connect with good yoga therapists who aren't going to. I mean, there are many probably out there who are great, but who aren't going to trigger, who are going to use your. So bottom line is, I guess I'm asking I could always reach out to you and see who's been through your intensive training and if they would be available in our area for our clients. There's
0: also a resource called yoga for eating disorders. Um, Really? If you're familiar with that. And actually that may be a good person for you to um, have on your podcast. It's a group of eating disorder, yoga teachers that actually do eating disorder. Mm -hmm. Specific classes they offer. Classes they offer just different
2: group support. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I want them to be trained by you, <laughs> but I'll tell. Definitely, we will look at yeah, that. And, and you know, as you know, as
0: people do get trained in this model, once the website's live, they will be listed on our website. So you'll see people that have been trained. Um, I, you know, and absolutely I think that would be a great resource too but you're right because certainly I've heard from clinicians I work with and patients alike that you go to a yoga class and inevitably there's some kind of dieting language in there you know it's like I had a really close a friend of mine who's a therapist say you know I love this particular yoga studio and I've actually been known to walk out of classes because you know towards the end here I am like really relaxed in a great space and all of a sudden out comes that like comment about like you know bathing suits and summer and, you
1: know, (laughs) yeah, Yeah. it's tough, but I think this is some of sheds light on some of the importance of why we want to have these conversations because so many people are just unaware, you know, of like what they might be saying. So you know trainings like yours having you on our podcast hopefully people are listening to this you know just just spreading the word is really great but i do have a bit of a wrap up question for okay. you okay. if you were to take yourself back to entering the field of eating disorders what do you wish you would have known then that you do know now
0: it's pretty clear you know i got into this 20 plus years ago and I knew how important in my training it was to have boundaries. What I didn't realize at the time is how important it was to also be able to speak a little more openly about my own personal history, not just in my individual counseling, but to be able to use my supervisors to to talk to about that. I actually felt it was, ended up being a source of shame, you know, something that I was holding and I realized looking back, I could have used my supervisors and talked about that piece and, and get, you know, asked for their guidance. I think I was really afraid of being an imposter and, you know, and, them judging me. So I, I realized that like, and I, I speak about that in my book a little bit that I, and I think things have definitely shifted in the field where I think we are, the space feels more open and, and supportive of the folks that have lived experience. Yeah.
2: I agree. I can't be happier. To know that people are able to share that and then when, then it allows our clients to then connect, but also not that they have, you have to have had yeah. a needing no. desire for your clients no. to no. connect.
0: And I think um, the boundaries are important, right? You don't want to project your experience onto <clears throat> the, onto clients and you want to make sure the space is held for them so that they can yes. do their work. Yes.
2: No matter what, that is a great nugget, Abby, don't you think, for our listeners to take is not only the boundaries, which Abby and I were just talking about before we got onto this recording, but also that it not, and not even necessarily the imposter syndrome, but just being able to openly talk to people about your own lived experience and how much that really helps you in your own practice. I think for
0: me, it really helped helped me become a much more integrated individual. If like we think of like IFS, it's more like these are different parts, right? Into integrated parts. Yeah.
2: Yeah, yeah. Thank you so much, Amy, for joining us today. We are really excited. You, you honored us to share your information, your book, I Move which will be in the show notes and we'll hook you up in the show notes too to the 12 week intensive training. It is kind of in an early stage, but by the time this rolls out, it might be available for folks in an easier way. And then you'll get us that resource on the OT, just the screening tool for when that professional would be most useful. Let's lean on each other and learn from each other so we can grow together as professionals in this field of eating disorders if you want to connect with me for supervision or membership with monthly content, please find me at bethharrell.com professionals.